Christians, books and tapes and teaching materials. You've been to conferences through the years. Uh, maybe some of you have not. Maybe you haven't been in the church that long and haven't had a chance to, to see some of these things for yourself. It is our desire that you would have the opportunity to look and, and see and understand and, and hear from God as you interact. Uh, one of the things that we've done to, to help you with that, we'd like for each family to take one of these today. Uh, Sovereign Grace Information Packet. The, the first thing you'll come across in this is our history with Sovereign Grace Ministries. And this is, this is not an exhausting or exhaustive presentation. It's just two and a half pages that will give you some idea of how do we even come across these people, uh, how do we know about them, and, and what's kind of been the relationship with them through the years. And, and this will trace you back to uh, actually before 1997 when we ever visited, just getting exposed to some materials and uh, beginning to interact and a uh, phone call I had with one of their pastors back in probably 1995 or six, somewhere up in that time frame. Uh, so this will tell you a little bit about how we have related to them through the years, and then it will go into a great deal of information about Sovereign Grace itself, their statement of faith, some frequently asked questions about their family of churches, what they believe, their practice, and then there's the last thing that's in there is a, uh, a radio interview that was done with uh, Jeff Perswell, who is the dean of the Pastors College and one of the pastors in Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg. And there was an interview that was done that really this fellow was asking all kinds of questions about Sovereign Grace. And maybe questions that you'd be interested in asking yourself. And Jeff answers those questions in that interview. So that's, that's all in this packet. Please, uh, one per family would, would help us to make sure we have enough for everybody who's interested in getting this. Read through it. Uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this teaching series is a couple of reasons. We, we want you to be in touch with the motivation and the thought process of the leadership of the church so that you have some sense of, of what are we thinking, uh, what has the Lord revealed to us that's, uh, that's caused us to pursue a particular direction and why we feel led to walk in a particular manner. Um, I think another reason why we are choosing to teach this biblically is because that's how we feel always led to, to lead the church. If we cannot give you a biblical explanation for what we're doing, then we shouldn't be doing it. And so uh, when we look in the scriptures, we see the primary, at least my opinion, the primary means of human leadership in the church. And I say human leadership. The Holy Spirit is, is in all these realms is through the ministry of teaching the church. When you see the church needing to be led, it is going to be instructed biblically. It's going to be instructed in the New Testament. And so that's what we felt led the most effective way that we could share our hearts with you would be to teach and preach the word in the categories that are relevant to these things. But another reason why we're doing this series and taking some time in it, and today we will take some time to, to have some question and answer immediately after this message, is because we want to stir up and provoke you to prayer over what we're sharing and to questions that you may need to have answered. We have the, the benefits of years of relating to Sovereign Grace Ministries, to being with leaders in a lot of different contexts, uh, whether it's been in ministry settings or at retreats or at conferences or just having dinner together or having people come visit and spend time with us or us with them. Uh, that's afforded us lots of times to ask questions and to engage the process of discovering who they are. And many of you have not had that opportunity, 
And so we want to give you the opportunity to ask questions and to pray through things that we've had to pray through and to arrive at some conclusions that the Holy Spirit would give to us. So let me encourage you to do this today. Write down questions as I'm sharing in the Word today. It may be particularly out of the message today, or it, it may be something that was shared last week, or it may just be something you've been wondering about, about our thoughts towards uh, sovereign grace and Lakeview and, and how all that comes together. So please uh, do feel free ask questions this morning. Last week, uh, we addressed the issue of the model of the New Testament church. What we see in Scripture is what we want to be. When we grow up, we want to be just like this. And we want to look like this, sound like this, have the same methods in place, have the same leadership activities in place, have the same emphasis in place that we find on the pages of the New Testament. And so last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, looked at the leadership structure that God has designed to influence the church. And that structure is to include more than just pastor-teacher giftings. And we want to seek to enlarge the impact of other gifts into this local church. We also looked at the, the network of church relationships that exist in the New Testament. You just, you just don't find churches that don't have some form of life blood flow into other churches. And that enables the sharing of resources with each other, the sharing of gifts of leadership with one another, uh, the sharing of encouragement that comes when we hear about the, the outbreak of God in different places and we're able to, to put reality to that. I mean, if, you're, if you've got skepticism flowing around in your veins the way I do, I, mean, I can hear something great going on over here in the body of Christ and my skeptical antennas go up and I start wondering and questioning and criticizing. And, you know, when you don't know those people, it's real easy to dismiss. Well, did God really do something that great over there? I mean, you know, people embellish things. But it's different... When you know people who are in other churches and settings, and they, you know these folks, and you have a relationship with them, and they begin to share with you the testimony of God, there, there is a sense of being able to accept that more readily. And, and there's a health in that that we need as a local church. This week, I want to answer a little bit of the question that sounds like this. It may be a question that you want, you want to ask, and you can still ask these questions even if we sort of answer them in these messages. Um, but I... I I sense this in our midst, uh, a little bit of a question of, why, and so why are we doing this? You know, if, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Uh, well, I would guess a couple of responses to that before I get into the, the message. One, what, what, what grace from God for us to be able to be in a place as a church where we don't feel broke? We don't feel like, man, I sure hope something happens around here to bail us out of this mess. Uh, and there are churches that are in that condition. And there are seasons and times and there are sin issues and there is doctrinal uh, train wrecks that occur that cause churches to get into that sort of a place. And what wonderful grace from God that we would be in a place over the years to enjoy our life together to share our life together, to walk together, to have a church that's unified, that loves the same things, that's willing to sacrifice, that is eager to be instructed, eager to apply, eager to follow leadership and to embrace things even when they're difficult, even when they're busy and challenging, but yet to have a passion for us to build the kingdom together. So it is a great blessing that we're, that we're not feeling like Oh, God, please bail us out of the mess that we're in. Uh, 
So, God, thank you for grace that's been upon our lives these many years together. But you know what we don't want to be, and today is primarily I want to address this, we don't want to ever become a people who live on our heels. Christianity, Christianity is never meant to be lived like this. You know, I've criticized that sometimes, because sometimes I feel like in certain areas of our lives, we're a church that leans back sometimes, not in, not in all areas, many areas lean forward. But in some areas, we, we find ourselves doing this. And today, a little bit of the question of, you know, you know, why don't we just err on the side of caution? You know, why, why do we need to mess with the idea of doing something different? You know, if you do something different, you know, who knows what might happen? Uh, well, the title today is Risking Change. Uh, should we do that? Should we take a risk and risk change? And one of the things that uh, I want us to delve into immediately here is, Yes, we should risk change because change and, and if you, risk taking is a challenging word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Taking risks is the, the tone and flavor of the entire New Testament. And when you watch the believers live their lives in the New Testament, they were, they were not a people who were leaning back, living on their heels, cautiously, you know, things are good. Let's not mess with anything. Let's not try anything. Let's not get out there in any new ways. That's not how you find the New Testament. But it is a struggle for us. I mean, we are a people who, you know, when when we talk about work and and the work environment that most of us are part of, we, we, we live for the day that we can retire, Right? We're, we're working so that we can take a vacation from work. You know, we, we have a tendency to want to be at ease. We want the comfortable, easier dimensions of life. We invent gadget after gadget after gadget. What, to get us to do more? No. But we're looking to invent, invent gadgets so we can do less. We, we'd, like, we'd like to take it easy. We'd like time off. We'd like less to do. We, this is a tendency in us. We gravitate towards the familiar. As people, right? With the same people in our lives, right? We, we interact with the same people. You know, you can check them off this morning. You're going to say hello and greet the same people that you see every Sunday, in spite of the fact that there's an auditorium full of people that you don't know. But yet we'll gravitate towards the same ones. They're safe, same environments, same places. We live in the same place. We grow up in the same place. We, we tend to stay the same in many areas. It's, we, we hesitate to step out into the unfamiliar. It's easier for us to keep doing what we've been doing rather than to break into something new. This is, this is something that's in us. And so when we come to change and we come to uh, being a little bit more aggressive as a church and being more assertive, you know, hey, we'll, we'll feel things that come to us. If difficulty and challenge comes to us, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay with addressing that with God. But what about creating change? What about initiating change in our lives? I don't, I don't know how you are in that category, uh, but it's a good question for all of us to, to wrestle through. Because we're in this together, but individually we are a certain way. I mean, are you very good at change? Do you, do you like to change things in your life? Do you like to take chances? you like to do stuff that, you know, this is, this is less than 100% certain. And is that a comfortable thing for you to do? Well, for most of us, it's not. It's not for me. 
I, I like absolutes. I, I like to live in a world of absolutes. There are no, no such animal, but I'd like to try it if it was possible. Turn in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. I'm going to make some observations from this passage. And uh, I think this passage here, and right at the middle of this passage where we're going to spend our focus, is a transitional moment for Jesus in relating to his disciples. And so what comes out of their response, I think is going to help us a little bit to identify in ourselves how we respond to transitions. So this is a season where Jesus is now beginning to inform them more emphatically. He's always been informing them, but he's about to get a little bit more emphatic that things are going to change, guys. It's just not going to stay the way it is. There's going to be some different stuff going on. And we're going to see why those changes take place. I want to hit three elements. One, the goal of transition. The goal of transition, as we see here. The interest, secondly, the interest in transition. What are we to be interested in when it comes to transition? And third, the risk of transition. Let's read this passage beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, listen, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now let me stop here for a moment and visit our first thought together. The goal of transition. Listen to what Jesus immediately highlights here. That as he's going to make this next statement in verse 21, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples something. Jesus is beginning to emphasize change here. On his way into this... He is discussing something that provides for us the goal of transition. That goal being the advancement of the church. Jesus declares something about himself. When, when Peter clues in and shares this revelation from the Father that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Jesus is the one who's going to save. He's the Son of God. He's come to fulfill the purpose of God. Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now let me move from the, the rock illustration into what Jesus immediately jumps into. He immediately jumps into talking about the church. If you want to see what Jesus is up to, he's giving it away right here. He is up to building his church. How is the kingdom going to be advanced? Whatever you bind on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven. How's the kingdom going to go forward? What's well, going to go forward through the church? How's the, the work of darkness the gates of hell, the accomplishments of the devil in this world going to be counteracted by the advancement of the church. 
what Jesus is about today. He is about the church. That's why the verses we looked at last week are so important in Ephesians chapter 4. Because his process to accomplish his will is that he would give gifts to the church, that the church would be built up, strengthened, and edified so that the church would be the church and would do the work of ministry and would affect the world that you and I live in. And he goes back to that same thought here. I'm building a church and the gates of hell won't be able to stop it. And it's going to advance my kingdom into this earth. Now look at Ephesians chapter 3. I put this passage in your outline. This would not be a new thought of what God's doing. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, God's eternal purpose, and this is not something that God's making up along the way here. God's eternal purpose has always been that at some point there would be this entity known as the church. Jesus Christ himself would be involved in building it. And God's interest would be in furthering the work of that church. That's God's interest in the earth today. Now, this is, this is where our theology of what's the primary motivation for God becomes important to us. And it's interesting that we, we talked this morning about this hurricane about to hit the Gulf Coast. And sometimes we struggle with the idea of God doing something because the, the struggle in our hearts is, okay, God, I just have a hard time with this because I just want to know how does this benefit man? That's what I want to know. God, you need to answer to how does this benefit man? And, you know, that's really not the right question to start with. The question is, how does this glorify God? That is the right biblical question to survey life through. Put this thought in your outline. Man-centered theology, in this sense finds that God's ultimate purpose in all that he does is man's benefit. That's what man-centered theology has as its primary goal, to see and understand and interpret the Bible and the activities of God through the lens of how does this benefit man. Now, everybody knows that, that God does supply benefit to man, doesn't he? Okay, but the, that's just not the first question. But that's the secondary question. God-centered theology finds that God's ultimate purpose is to reveal His glory. That's what God is looking to do in every moment, all the time. And so when you and I interpret our own lives, when we try and figure out, is this a good thing or a bad thing? This is where that comfort thing, is it going to take me off my heels? Well, it can't be good. Does it mean more vacation time? Yeah. If it doesn't, then it can't be good. Is it going to make, mean that my life might become harder? Well, then it can't be good. Will it be uncomfortable? Well, then it can't be good. Do you see how man-centered our lives are? And then when, when events happen, and whatever it is, life gets touched by challenge, you and I start questioning, and we start, you know, is, this, is this good? Well, does it glorify God? then it's good. But what if it causes me discomfort? 
while it's glorifying God, then it's still good, isn't it? But that's the challenge. I know. This is the challenge for us. And this is why considering change and considering things being changed in our lives, we want to figure out, will the change bring comfort to me? Will I like what changes? That's not the right question for us, though. Will this advance the kingdom of God and bring glory to him? Will the church be better postured for the glory of God? That, that's how you and I need to be thinking about being involved in the church. That's what Jesus' issue is about. It's about building the church. And that's what he is concerned with, even for his own life. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus speaking, says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? See, there's a, there's a tinge. I mean, the humanity of Jesus is not corrupted. It's, it's not touched by sin. But there's a, there's a hint here of what you and I can identify with. Here in the midst of Jesus, about to go to the cross and face the purpose of God, is the revelation of real discomfort and pain. And our humanity wants to say exactly what Jesus implies here. Rescue us. God, rescue us from this. But Jesus responds, But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, that is the driving agenda of God, always. That His name be glorified. His name be in lights. His name be accessible to be seen in all of its greatness. All of its greatness. And sometimes there are realms of the greatness of God that only get seen through discomfort. And that you cannot have a more clear picture of that than what happened with, with Jesus himself, can you? It was his death and his incredible discomfort, can't even begin to touch the word correctly, experience of the wrath of God poured out on him in response to our sins being laid on him. But he sees a greater issue even than that. He sees the glory of God in that. See, and you see in other places in Scripture, Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. That's why we were created, for the glory of God to be known. Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. We will declare God's praise. Our lives will show forth, right? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, to show forth the praises of Him, the excellencies of God. So that's why we exist. That's why the church exists. That's what He is building. So thoughts on transition and change need to incorporate the, the thought that the goal of change, the goal of transition in God's economy is the advancement of His church. And that's what you and I need to be loving as well. Secondly, the interest in transition is the glory of God. That's what our interest needs to be. And whether we change anything in our lives, our interest in it needs to be God's glory. Listen to what happens here in verse 21. Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. And it's amazing that it just did say he's going to be raised, right? He's going to be raised. Now, can you see why Jesus responds to Peter the way he's about to? I mean, this wasn't like he just said, I'm going to be ill-treated and I'm going to end up in the grave and that's it. End of the story, guys. No, he explained the whole process to them. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Some of your translations say you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. And listen, isn't that the daily battle of every one of our lives? The battle for whether my concern and weight and passion is for God's interest in this situation in my life or whether it's for my interests in this thing. And these guys had some interest at this point. Can you imagine Jesus? He's beginning to be more emphatic with them and filling them in. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. Show them what? Guys, things are about to change. It's not going to be the way it has been with us. It's been a two to three years at this point together relating to one another, getting up, having breakfast, traveling together, having conversation, having their lives peeled open by the the God who knows the hearts of men, revealing wisdom and truth. Can you imagine they could think that anything could be an improvement on this? And guys, I just need to let you know, that's about to change. The way we spend our time together is about to change. The way you and I relate, it's about to change. Now, you need to take my word for it that it's going to be better. As a matter of fact, it's better that I go away than if I stay. Because if I go away, something else is going to change as well. The Holy Spirit, who's been with you, but he's going to be in you. If I go away, I'm going to send him to you. The Comforter, he's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to lead you into the truth. He's going to teach you all these things. And he's going to disclose to you what I've taught to you. Now, at this point, those are nice words, but you've had Jesus as your teacher. You're not thinking there's been any deficiency so far. You're thinking this has been quite good enough for us. Uh, The idea of having somebody else come and take your place. That's okay, Jesus. We're really not. We're not crazy about that idea. We'd like to stay with just what we have right now. And here's the challenge for us as believers. God begins to do something that in his economy is exactly what he wants to do in that time frame. And we say, God, this is good enough for us. God then comes at some point and says, that was then, and this is now. And I want to change some things. And we wrestle, and we say, but God, this has been good enough for us. It really has been. It's fine. But there's things that are about to happen here that these guys can't even fathom. They can't even begin to fathom. This, this little Jewish enterprise, which at this point, that's what it is, it's a little Jewish enterprise. It's about to go global in an incredible way that these guys can't even begin to take in. Now, Jesus knows what's about to be happening, but these guys can't take it in. It's mind-blowing to think that this ministry that Jesus birthed while he was still upon the earth, 
only covered a territory that was at most about 40 miles wide and about 90 miles long. That's it. That's what they know about the kingdom of God. 40 miles wide, 90 miles long. You know, it's kind of like visiting the communities along I-10 on your way to Baton Rouge. That's it. That's the kingdom of God for you. And Jesus is about to do something with this that when he leaves and sends the Holy Spirit, an explosion is going to take place. It's going to rivet the entire world. These guys can't even begin to grasp that. And see, there's a realm when you and I stand sometimes with change in front of us, transition in front of us, that we don't even begin to know all that's in place and all that's about to happen. But we need to be able to trust the one who is leading us into those moments. But look at what happens here. Verse 22, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus clarifies, Peter, your interest at this moment is man's interest. It's not God's. I'm not sure if Peter is, is hiding his real interest here. I mean, what, what's really making this statement come out? Either way, it's, it's, it's missing the mark. Is he, is he so much enamored with the humanity of the Son of God that he can't stand the idea that the Son of God would be delivered over, betrayed, and, and crucified? The death of the humanity of the Son of God is something that Peter just, that's unspeakable that that would happen to you. Uh, I don't even remember, these are guys that are also fighting about who's going to be on the cabinet members when Jesus comes into power as well. And so I've got a, I'm suspicious, again, I'm a skeptic. So I'm suspicious that, that, that Peter's found a great way of saying, don't you know what this will do to me? <laughs> when he says, no, may it never be. Now, I'm sure he loves the Lord and, and is not crazy about any suffering coming into Jesus' life. But he, he, has, he has cast his eyes upon the temporary and the comfortable. And he has failed to see the eternal in this moment. And his, his concern is for the humanity element here. It's for the humanity of Jesus at best. At worst, it's for his own humanity. Now, this, this won't be a real great thing. Jesus is going to cause suffering for all of us. May it never be. Jesus' response is, you have, have set your interests at the level of man's comfort, Peter rather than at what will be glorious for God to do in this scenario. And then Peter won't be the last guy who has to wrestle with this. I put in your outline Acts chapter 21. The Apostle Paul has to address a similar gathering. Chapter 21, verse 10 of Acts, he says, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, <clears throat> we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. That sounds like what Peter would have done. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When you look all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord over and over again says, for my name's sake, for my name's sake I do these things. When God talks about his name, he's talking about his glory. So for the sake of the glory of God, Paul says, 
I am willing to go to Jerusalem in the purpose of God and die there and suffer loss, if you will. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. See, it's a challenge for you and I not to want to trade eternal glory for temporary comfort. That's our challenge all the time. That's that faith challenge. God, this is uncomfortable right now. This is not going to bring me an immediate return that I'm going to be happy about. I have a hard time discerning this is your will. Well, I need to begin with the glory of God. that's That's what's at stake here. The interest in transition, the interest in change is the glory of God. That's what our interest has got to be as a church. We exist for the glory of God to be seen in this building, in these lives, in our gathering together and being called a local church. That's why we exist. Now, last, the risk of transition. Risking the temporary in order to gain the eternal. And we don't always suffer temporary loss. We don't always suffer that. We don't always suffer the loss of things or people or settings. But there is a risk that we might. The New Testament does not offer us guarantees that you won't suffer the loss of things that are temporary and earthly for the sake of that which is eternal. Look, look in, when Jesus is finished rebuking Peter, look what he says. Actually, Matthew records for us next thought. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that that goes right to the heart of whatever Peter's concern was in rebuking Jesus. This is right at the heart of it. Whether it has to do with Jesus' own life or whether it has to do with Peter's. Peter, this is how the kingdom operates. If you want to find life, you need to take the risk of losing your own. You need to go ahead and do that. Because it's the one who will do that who actually will find life. See, God makes no apology that he takes the things that are temporary in our lives, sometimes comfortable, the natural realms of our lives, and he trades them for that which is eternal and glorious. These momentary light afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of what? Glory beyond all comparison. See, that's the economy of God. God looks at temporary things that are destined to return to dust and ashes. And he says, you know what? I'm going to use that to trade for something eternal. I'm going to use that to work for something eternal. I'm going to, I'm going to cause something gloriously eternal to take place using this. Well, using that sometimes means spending it. It means some of those things are expendable for the sake of the glory of God coming into our midst, into our lives. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, listen, even though now, 
for a little while, temporarily, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what does this verse tell me? In the midst of all God's lavish promises, of the hope that's stored up for us, of the eternal future that you and I know that we have, even if right now in temporary realms we are distressed by various trials, what is that distressing in various trials purchasing for us? Well, it's purchasing a work of faith that's going to result in something. What is it going to result in? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, can you see the same purpose of God here that's all over the place? What is God doing? He is revealing the praiseworthy, the glorious dynamics, the name of Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing always and forever. And so, is this good, what's going on in my life right now? Does it reveal the glory of God? Then, then it's good. It's not a matter of, well, well, does it bring me temporary comfort right now? Even if necessary, you are distressed by various trials, so that those trials would affect your faith in such a way that the result would be God's praiseworthiness would be on display in our lives. My people whom I created for myself will declare my praise. See, God has never changed what he's up to. And he's chosen a vehicle for the church for that to be accomplished. Now, look in 2 Corinthians just for a moment with me. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. may adjust our view of Christianity. 2 Corinthians 11, let me just pick up in the middle of Paul's thoughts here, verse 24. Here's a guy taking some chances in his life. He's making decisions that put him in a place of great risk. Verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times... I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, this is Paul describing his experience as a believer. If I read that and incorporate it into my definition of Christianity, Christianity is a dangerous thing, isn't it? It's dangerous to be a Christian. That's not how we think about Christianity. We've gone from the first century church where it was dangerous to be a Christian to the history of Christianity, which is, is always trying to tame Christianity. We're always trying to tame it. We want to make it about 
our benefit. We don't make it about our rescue, about our comfort, about how to, uh, how to be able to use faith in order to gain personal benefit. You know, that, that's, that's what Christianity is turned into through the years. Christianity is a wild thing. It is an adventure. It is a dangerous thing to be a part of. And if anybody told you otherwise, they didn't tell you what all the Bible said. The Apostle Paul here makes absolutely no apology. The, the tone in the New Testament is that Christianity involves taking chances. It involves going places that are going to put your life in a place where you're not exactly going to be comfortable. There might be pain there. There might be distress there. There might be failure there. Some of us, the worst failure we could ever possibly, or our worst pain we could ever possibly consider would be failing at something. We'd rather get beat up. We'd rather drive through a bad neighborhood, get mugged and beat up. But don't ask me to lead an alpha table. Man, I might not have an answer. A guy might look at me. You know, people might think I'm stupid. They may not say I'm stupid, but I think I'm stupid. You know, like that's the most. Well, welcome to the danger zone. And that's really not all that dangerous, is it? When you go back and read Paul's descriptions again, we've yet to have anybody who's led anything in Alpha to say I was beaten. They took me out back. I was stoned. Man, if thirty-nine lashes. You know, nobody has described their experience that way. We are mildly dangerous in our Christianity today. And all the more seeking to tame it. But the church is this, it's this entity that Jesus has said, I'm building this thing. And it's going to live in confrontation with the gates of hell. And the kingdom will be advanced through it. That's, that's, this is not a joy ride. It is a joy ride. It's just a strange way of producing joy. It is the joy of seeing the kingdom come, isn't it? But it's risky. And what we need is a great restoration of, of urgency in us as, as the people of God. Urgency and compulsion. Well, we are compelled to take risks. We are compelled to rescue the lost. We are compelled to advance the kingdom. We are compelled by every opportunity that could exist within our power, for the gloriousness of God to be revealed upon the earth. That's why you and I are alive. That's why we draw breath. That's why we're gathered together as a church. So when we start thinking transition, when we start thinking changing anything around here, what we can't do is start thinking, will it be comfortable? That's never a question in the New Testament. Will it be glorious? Now that's a question that's in the Scriptures. That we want to make sure we lay a hold of. Urgency. We didn't look at that passage in Romans 13, but you can go look at the end of Romans 13 when you get time to look at that. There's the urgency of Paul and why our lives need to be taking on the expression of the work of the Spirit that he declares in those passages and those chapters in Romans. It's the hour that we live in. You know the hour. It's time for us to put off the pajama clothes of the night and put on the works of righteousness. It's time. There's urgency. It's all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Listen, there needs to be that kind of tone, not just for the apostle, but for the church. I am under compulsion. Do you feel under compulsion 
to do something, to, to step out in realms that will bring the glory of God and opportunities for the testimony of God. Do you feel under compulsion to do something that's going to take a chance? It's going to be a risk if I try to do this. Acts chapter 20, Paul sharing with the Ephesians says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. What, what was framing... I mean, Paul's transitioning here. He's transitioning from being in the realm of being with the churches. Now, I'm not sure that one's a real great place to be as he describes the dangers that he's been in. But now he's going to Jerusalem and and then prophetically he's being warned. Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen to you. And so he knows something not so good is going to happen. But he still manages to say, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there. Well, Paul, you kind of know. You just got finished saying that. You just don't know completely what's going to happen to you there. But there's a passion in him to accomplish something for the glory of God, that ministry that's been given to me. I don't consider my life of any restraint in this equation. Paul, I won't be comfortable. That's not the issue for me. And as as you and I consider decisions and, and directions, as we consider the local church, as we consider what is Lakeview Christian Center supposed to become, uh, that needs to be the way in which we sound. So when we came into Christianity, the invitation into Christianity was found back in Matthew chapter 16. It's that the one who loses his life is the one who finds it. Peter, don't cling to your life. Don't hold on to your life. Paul's not holding on to his life. And when you don't hold on to your life, there that urgency and compulsion of the kingdom gives you a freedom to go and do things that we don't feel all hemmed in and terrified by. And should we? <gasps> what might happen? Because we don't consider our own lives in that regard. We're not motivated by what will make us comfortable, what will improve my lot temporarily. Our motive is the glory of God. John Piper can resist John's thought on risk. He says, I define risk very simply as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. If you take a risk, you can lose money. You can lose face. You can lose your health or even your life. Why is there such a thing as risk? Because there is such a thing as ignorance. If there were no ignorance, there would be no risk. Risk is possible because we don't know how things will turn out. And God has saw to it that that's the case for us. God issues an invitation for us to follow him. How many of y'all know how it's going to turn out for you to follow him? Now, you know the big picture in the end, right? You know that that God will give you a glorified body. There will be wonderful rewards. You will be with him for eternity. You don't know a lot beyond that, do you? And God has saw fit that that's not how he wants us to follow him. God has not. And I think this is just, again, the great wisdom of God. God has not said, let me show you everything. And then you follow me. 
He doesn't do that. He keeps us in the dark on a whole bunch of stuff, doesn't he? And therefore, following him by nature, because of the ignorance that we don't know all that could happen, involves risk. And for these guys in the New Testament, it was the risk of losing their lives. Jesus clearly told them, some of you are going to be killed. Not all of you, but some of you. Can you tell us which ones that'll be, Jesus, real quick, before you go? (laughs) Wouldn't that have been our tendency? No, you don't need to know. No, no, we need to know. We really do need to know. We want to promote somebody and have them killed the next day. I mean, come on, help us out here. Uh, No, it's best if you don't know, because I, I want you, I want you to live a risky life. I want you to always be stepping out without knowing what will happen here. I know the great question in terms of affiliation is, well, what will happen if we affiliate? Well, might this happen, or might that happen, or might this happen? And I'm not trying to chase off your questions this morning. You can ask all those questions, and uh, we'll be glad to answer them, uh, or not give an answer. (laughs) Because, I mean, I can just turn around and say, well, what will happen if we don't affiliate? Does anybody know? Not any more than you know than if we do affiliate, right? (laughs) We simply don't know. No matter what we do, there will be risk involved. There's risk to stay just like we are. There's risk to affiliate with others. And so there's no rescuing us from the risk factor. We are going to proceed taking a chance. We proceed in faith. We proceed to pursue God. But we need to proceed with these motivators in, in place. No matter what we do, no matter what decision we make together as a church, it, it needs to be a decision that is concerned for the advancement of the church, that is motivated and concerned with the glory of God, and that is willing to risk temporary things in exchange for eternal glorious things. No matter what we do, those factors have got to be in our hearts. That's what God is most pleased with. Um, And I would encourage you in this, as as we open up for some questions here. Um, Engage this process enough to where you feel the risk. Because if you're saying, well, you know, you guys decide... Uh, That's fine. I appreciate that you trust the leadership of the church. But, you know, there's a benefit in this as well. I think everybody needs to experience and God would want to experience. Do you you taste the risk of this decision? I do. I think all the elders do. You know what it makes me have to do? It makes me have to get faith from God to proceed. And the day I stop living my life in the posture of I need to get faith from God to proceed, that's not a good day for me anymore. That's this day. I'm leaning back. I might not even be standing anymore. I may be sitting down. <laughs> so that's kind of where we want to be. Because I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to invite the elders to come up. And we're going to take about 15 minutes and, and let you ask any questions that you'd like to ask. Father, thank you. Thank you again for your word. It is the basis that we want to live our lives out of. It informs us, helps our expectations, 
helps us to understand what you're about more clearly. So, Lord, thank you for what we have looked at in your word this morning. Uh, Lord, help us. Lord, help us together this morning. Lord, thank you for time for us to, to talk and share with each other. Lord, Lord, use these next few moments, and again next week, and other opportunities that we'll have, that together we are listening for you. Together, Father, wanting to sense your Spirit's leadings for your church for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, let's do this. We're going to take 15 minutes, close to 15 minutes, probably, and uh, just grab some questions. If you have questions, please come up. Um, if you are just really afraid of microphones, if you'll yell your question real loud, I'll repeat it. I know sometimes this thing scares people away from it. Um, but if you can come ask in the microphone, that would be helpful. Uh, let me ask the elders who are here.